by any means necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guy for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be talking about the reports of a a massacre in Buka and uh, how coverage around that has differed and what it could mean for the war in Ukraine. Also going to be talking about the constitutional crisis in Pakistan, how the U.S. is involved and what it means for the South Asian region. Also going to be talking about the role of the intelligence community in Hollywood. And as always at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But before we can move on, Jackie, tell them what's on your mind. Well, as the rhetoric about Russian war crimes in Bucha, I think that's how you pronounce it. I think I mispronounced it yesterday, but I hope I got it right today, is heating up with State Department-sponsored media outlets like the Washington Post claiming that Putin's accurate assessment of ridding Ukraine of Nazis was tantamount to his calls for genocide of Ukrainian people even though those same Ukrainians in the Kiev army have been fighting alongside actual neo-Nazis while they were killing ethnic Russians and others in the Donbass, Luhansk, and Crimea regions for eight years, you have to know that all of this nonsensical doublespeak by the U.S. imperialist regime has to be covering up something. Oh, of course, they're still covering up the Obama White House's coup in 2014 in Ukraine and the civil war that came after it. But there's something else. I have to state again that if Russian troops are found to have actually committed these atrocities, and yes, of course, they should be held accountable. But this government will do anything to hide from the public the fact that it armed, funded, and unleashed neo-Nazis on the people of Ukraine for years. So it is my job to never let you forget that. And it's also my job to tell you that while people are calling Putin pure evil and a war criminal behind these very thin, dubious, and suspect allegations of war crimes in Bucha, the U.S. government is considering expanding its permanent military bases to Eastern Europe. The head of the U.S. Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Miley, said that the U.S. is considering the possibility of establishing permanent forward deployed bases in Eastern Europe to help bolster NATO. They would be staffed by rotating forces as opposed to having a permanent troop presence, he said, as if that makes the news of the U.S. expanding its already overwhelming 800 military bases around the world, as if that makes it more palatable and less deadly. It does not. And do we really believe that there won't be permanent troop deployments there? No, we do not. This news of potential new permanent U.S. military bases in Eastern Europe was reported yesterday way down in an hourly update article on Bloomberg.com. But the possibility of permanent troops deployed to that region was something that was talked about as early as March 1st of this year. The Biden administration's $6.4 billion request to Congress to respond to the Ukraine crisis at that time included $3.5 billion for the Pentagon to pay for operating costs associated with the surge to the current 100,000 troops in Europe or to its waters. Remember when Biden said no U.S. troops would be sent to Ukraine? Hmm. 
Oh, and don't think that NATO is going to let its master, the U.S. government, act alone. NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg announced last month that NATO is creating four new battle groups, which usually number between 1,000 and 1,500 troops to send to Hungary, Slovakia, Romania, and Bulgaria. General Miley agreed that Moscow's ongoing demands that the U.S. and NATO reduce troops and arms in European countries along Russia's borders signal a lengthy conflict in the region that extends beyond Ukraine. He said, I do think this is a very protracted conflict, and I think it's at least measured in years. I don't know about decades, but at least years for sure said Miley. I think that NATO, the United States, Ukraine, and all of the allies and partners that are supporting Ukraine are going to be involved in this for quite some time. This was their plan all along, folks. This is what they don't want you to know. Putin's demands to not increase troops and move U.S. NATO weapons closer to Russia's border has been what every Russian leader has asked since the end of the Soviet Union, was promised by several U.S. presidents would not happen, and those promises were broken every single time. As much as one would argue that this conflict is about resources in Ukraine, and I think that might be true on the EU's part in particular, this is really about the U.S., EU, and NATO creating a launching pad for a protracted campaign to further weaken, if not completely destroy Russia, with an aim to attack China on one front. The propping up of Hong Kong and Taiwan is another front that the U.S. is using against China. But all of this chaos and death and war in Ukraine has been orchestrated by the U.S. government and its allies since at least 2014, all to expand U.S. military presence and permanence and U.S. dominance in Eastern Europe to ultimately challenge China. All of this could have been avoided decades ago by the U.S. and NATO not moving their forces into countries on Russia's border, former Warsaw Pact countries, former allies of the Soviet Union. But it definitely could have been avoided in January of this year when the Biden administration held talks with Russia to discuss those very troop deployments and military exercises and hardware being deployed and escalated in Eastern Europe. Initially, a current administration official and two former U.S. national security officials familiar with the planning of the meeting told NBC News that the Biden administration was ready to propose scaling back U.S. troops to ease tensions with Russia if they would agree to reduce their troops inside their own borders. But after the article was published, White House National Security Spokesman Emily Horn disputed that the U.S. was considering reducing the number of troops permanently stationed in Poland and the Baltic states. Someone in this administration did want to avoid this, but not Biden. He wants his forever war, and he is willing to sacrifice Ukraine, the people of Bucha, and the truth to get it, just like his boss Obama, who started this particular imperialist mess back in 2014. And now you know why you haven't heard anything from him throughout this. 
He's sitting back sipping his mimosas, watching the world cheer for the neo-Nazis he armed and legitimized to pacify Ukraine to expand U.S. global hegemony and domination into Eastern Europe and the rest of the world. Now you know the whole hand they've been hiding. Follow Luke Mon Nation on Patreon.com slash Luke Mon Nation for lots of great content. And those are today's talking points. And you are listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we're your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. By Any Means Necessary. And we're going to keep the movement moving on as they say. We're now happy to be joined by international affairs and security analyst Mark Sloboda. Mark, thanks so much for joining us. Sean, Jackie, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on by any means necessary. Well, the pleasure is all ours, Mark. And I mean, there's been a, a real kind of uh, uh, uproar and serious response following a recent massacre uh, in a town called Buka, which is not that far from Kiev, the capital city of Ukraine, uh, with the Ukrainian uh, uh, government saying that this was done by uh, Russian troops before they left the area. Uh, I think there are some questions uh, about about certain aspects of the narrative and the timeline and things like that. Of course, the Russian government is uh, uh, denying this. There are photos that purport to show a kind of mass grave where uh, uh, this massacre was carried out. I mean, it you know seems pretty clear that something happened. But I mean, from your perspective, Mark, I mean, what's really going on here? And what do you think we should be looking at as, you know, this continues to unfold? Because I just feel like we're still very very much in like a fog of war moment where, you know, things could be framed a certain way. I mean, even if we think back to uh, the bombing in uh, Mariupol and things like this, but I mean, bringing it back to the issue at Buka, I mean, how are you uh, uh, sort of uh, analyzing this at this point? Yeah, there there is uh, a lot of fog of war at present. Uh, Bucha is a town about 60 kilometers north of Kiev, town, small city. Um, and um, Russian forces have uh, been in control of this town since about the second week of the conflict. Uh, there was a heated battle uh, in the town, uh, uh, at least a couple of them, actually. Um, and um, a Russian uh, tank column moving into the town was hit from outside the town by Kiev regime artillery uh, and drone strikes. Uh, and there were extended firefights through the city. So first of all, uh, there was uh, fighting here, and there was undoubtedly collateral damage done uh, on both sides. This is urban combat, right? This is this is what happens. Whoever does urban combat, there is collateral damage. However much you know, both sides uh, might, might try to avoid it in, in any given conflict. Um, uh, near uh, just uh, over a week ago, uh, Russia began moving. Uh, some of its troops out of the north area of Kiev uh, in order to use them in the east where a cauldron, a, a, an envelopment of the main force of the Ukrainian regular military on the outskirts of Donbass is happening. And that's viewed as kind of a, a crucial uh, pivot point 
uh, in the war that's upcoming. So these troops were were moved out of this area to an, an area of, of higher strategic concern. Um, Russian troops, uh, it's best looked at this in as a kind of a timeline. And on March 30th, the uh, the Russian side announced that they had withdrawn from Bucha. Um, and um, there was also an announcement by the Russian and the Ministry of Defense on that day that they had word that the Kiev regime was planning another provocation, a, a false flag psyops incident, blaming Russia for war crimes uh, throughout the country. Um, on the next day, the 31st of March, the mayor of Bucha, Anatoly Fedorik, he had never been removed by Russian forces uh, while they were there. Um, and he uh, had had communication uh, with Kiev and the rest of the country during that time. He had never talked about any type of massacre of civilians or anything like this. And he announced that the town was liberated, uh, th- that uh, Kiev, the, the Russians had completely withdrawn, that uh, Kiev regime forces were, uh, and he referred to uh, Russians as orcs. It's been liberated from the orcs. I mean, if you're familiar with J.R.R. Tolkien. Uh, so he, he referred to them uh, in this type of dehumanizing language uh, that, that's quite normal for the uh, Ukrainian far right. Uh, to refer to ethnic Russians. He announced that uh, Mariupol was liberated, and he said nothing about any any atrocities, any large number of dead civilians, anything like this. In the, in the next day, the um, Ukrainian National Police announced that there was, there was going to be conducted a um, cleansing operation of Bucha to hunt out any potential Russian saboteurs left behind and collaborators with Russian forces, right? This was specifically announced. It's not in question. It was uh, actually repeated in a video by a member of the Bucha city council, a woman, um, and it, it came out on their website. So they announced a cleansing operation against collaborators. Again, no word about any atrocities, large numbers of civilians killed, so on. And that was on April 2nd. Uh, later on April 2nd, suddenly there, there was these reports that there were large numbers of civilians killed. And Western journalists were called into the area, uh, in, including Reuters and AP, in particular to drive down one street where there were uh, at least a dozen, uh, possibly more bodies laid out kind of right on both sides of the street, right? As if, um, you know, to pr- provide <laughs> a very convenient photo op. A number of these bodies, it was noted by Reuters in their reporting, had white armbands on. Now, uh, during this conflict, in order to try to minimize friendly fire casualties, both sides are using colored armbands. In different areas, the Ukrainians lose, use blue or yellow, and in different areas, the Russian forces use red or white. And this is also often used by civilians in, in that area uh, will also put on armbands of this type to say, don't shoot me. Now, a large number of these bodies had white armbands. 
And we know that the Ukrainian National Police announced they were conducting a cleansing operation against collaborators. So the question that the Ukrainian, the Western media is not asking, they're not really asking any questions at all. They're just repeating uh, the Kiev regime narrative about what happened. But we know that there was a cleansing operation committed. So uh, how many collaborators did they find and what did they do with them? Right. So um, I think it is very likely that at least a significant number of these uh, dead civilians um, were uh, killed uh, as collaborators. Um, and there is also video evidence. Uh, one of the Ukrainian forces that came into the town, uh, the Boatsman Boys, this is a uh, kind of an infamous territorial defense uh, unit uh, led by Sergei Korotkik. And Sergei Korotkik is a Belarusian neo-Nazi with a long and sordid history of murder, decapitation of migrants, uh, you, you name it. This is a truly abominable, unquestioned uh, neo-Nazi. He, he served with Azov before he was awarded a medal by Poroshenko for killing other Ukrainians. Um, and um, he led his forces into this town, evidently uh, as part of this cleansing operation. And in the video, uh, which they themselves taped and then uploaded walking through Bucha, uh, there is a part where one of the uh, boatsman boys asks another, hey, there are people without blue armbands. I mean, people who are not either Ukrainian forces or civilians who are publicly professing their loyalty to Ukraine by also putting the blue armband on. And he says, can we just shoot them all? And the other one says, sure. So <laughs> this is a video that they uploaded themselves. They then deleted it a day later. But I mean, the internet doesn't forget these things. Uh, so there's a clear pattern here, and we've already seen this pattern in Kiev as well, right? It's just, again, something that is not in question. It's been reported by the Ukrainian regular media, uh, Ukrainska Pravda, one of their main newspapers. It's been talked about by their RADA members. The Kiev regime is publicly summary executing on the streets people that it identifies as collaborators or traitors. And they've even gone after their own officials. Um, it was uh, one of the uh, Kiev regime's first peace negotiators with Russia, Denis Kerariv. He was shot by the Ukrainian intelligence services, SBU, in broad daylight in Kiev, entering a courthouse, shot twice, dead. And it was publicly acknowledged. Western media doesn't repeat it because it doesn't fit the narrative, but the Ukrainian media reported. Also, the shot dead on the streets was a former deputy director of the intelligence services, uh, and they actually filmed <laughs> them killing him and put it out, right? So none of this is in question. They, they drove up on both sides of his cars and just railed it with automatic fire, killing everyone in the car, right? They're quite open about this. They are summary executing people that they consider traitors and collaborators, even officials 
and 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 certainly it can probably be expected that this extends to uh, civilians as well. So it seems likely that at least some of the deaths in Bucha were caused by this. There's some other evidence that some of the bodies might have just been collateral damage. There was an impact crater uh, uh, on this street in question. The New York Times actually uh, did find that important detail. But uh, there does definitely need to be an investigation here. There is a high likelihood that this is being created as some type of psyop to uh, accuse Russian forces of a war crime when, in fact, at least some of these people may have been unintentionally killed by Ukrainian artillery. Others uh, may have been uh, executed as collaborators. There needs to be a truly independent UN investigation. This, this cannot be conducted by the EU without the UN being present, without the UN, you know, uh, over overseeing this mission because they are our party to this conflict. And right now, the uh, UK, which is the president, uh, current president of the rotating president of the UN Security Council, twice this week blocked Russian attempts to have a meeting to address this, you know, uh, what has happened in Bucha and to call for an independent investigation into this. And then the question has to be raised, why? Why is the UK? I mean, are they taking time to establish the facts on the ground that they want to be discovered? Uh, Are they attempting to get their story straight? This is, you know, Unfortunately, we have a long, long string of constant disinformation and psyops being put out by the regime in Kiev that is echoed like like stenographers by the Western press. There was uh, the uh, Snake Island martyred martyred sailors hoax. No one was actually killed. They didn't fight. They surrendered. And and the uh, Kiev tried to say that they were dead and heroes and so on. They've all since been returned. The ghost of Kiev, this mythical uh, Ukrainian airplane that shoots down a Russian, a thousand Russian planes a day, doesn't exist. Um, The bombings of the Baba Yar Holocaust Memorial and the Chernobyl nuclear power plant were reported by that didn't happen. Uh, that has been debunked. The uh, bombing of a uh, maternity hospital uh, uh uh, such that there were uh, people inside. Uh, that has been the, the debunked. The neo-Nazi uh, Kiev regime, state-armed and funded neo-Nazi death squad, Azov, was occupying that hospital as a firing position. And one of the women that they had videoed in a propaganda video claiming that there was a Russian airstrike on that hospital, you know, against pregnant women, has since been found in Mariupol. She's come forward and talked about what really happened and how she's been used. And uh, Max Blumenthal, uh, uh, actually, it was done by Clint Clarenberg uh, uh, at the Gray Zone, which is run by Max Blumenthal. That's an excellent report in the um, the last couple of days. I think anyone who wants to look into this should about these psyops should read this. It actually goes into Bucha a bit too. And the article is new witness testimony about Mariupol maternity hospital airstrike follows pattern of Ukrainian deceptions, media malpractice. And that's at the gray zone. I strongly recommend that anyone who wants to look into more specific details about both of these incidents uh, read into it.
you know, Mark, certainly we realize that uh, the corporate media outlets, what I'm calling now the State Department-sponsored media outlets, cannot be trusted with uh, telling the truth about what's going on. And particularly, I think that's true in regard to the New York Times, which uh, had uh, journalists in Bucha on Saturday that did not report a massacre, but they've been in Bucha alongside the neo-Nazi Azov Battalion. Uh, And they put their soldiers' pictures in the newspaper. So people in the U.S. and around the world reading the New York Times are literally cheering on neo-Nazis who are, you know, posed as heroes uh, in the New New York Times. What has been the particular issue with the way Jason Michael McCann uh, on Standpoint Zero, um, the way he pointed out the New York Times reported the ongoing events in Bucha and how they framed this narrative since since they were there with the Azov Battalion uh, on the Saturday that a massacre was supposed to have happened, but didn't really. Yeah, I mean, they have not answered questions about why they were in the town for several days before these they reported on and these atrocities were suddenly found. Um, and I think that there are serious ethical questions being raised uh, about their association with Azov. This was the re- exact same situation with um, the uh, AP uh, in Mariupol where uh, one of their journalists, Yevgeny Malaletka, was also embedded with Azov, a literal state-armed and funded neo-Nazi death squad. Um, You know, uh, embedding with troops in a time of war is normal for journalists. But I think ethical questions need to be raised about embedding with a neo-Nazi death squad. I mean, a, I mean, their founder said the Ukrainian national idea is to fight a crusade to save the white race around the world. I mean, that, that <laughs> you, you can't get much more neo-Nazi than that, right? Yeah, seriously. I mean, you know, uh, it's that, that that's pretty unequivocal. And I mean, you know, embedding with neo-Nazis, embedding with, you know, uh, so-called moderate rebels in Syria. I mean, you know, uh, American uh, journalists and Western journalists and I think, you know, a goodly number of Western officials as well seem to have a real uh, proclivity for that. And I mean, you know, Mark, it, it's there's just so much to sort of get through in terms of really picking through uh, what sort of happened here. And the context you laid out is so uh, very important in terms of all the different contradictions and questions that um, uh, the popular narrative is already raising and shows, I think, the need for just that kind of investigation that you were pointing to. Because, you know, these questions that we're raising, you know, th- th- these are not things that I think can be easily answered. So there has to be, to me, a sort of very real, very intentional uh, kind of way of looking into just what happened here. Uh, And, you know, it it just seems that from what we've seen from the from Britain in terms of the Security Council and things like that, that there seems to be an effort to try to stop that kind of thing from actually happening, which I think, you know, implies uh, that maybe there are some things caught up in this that don't exactly meet the uh, mainstream narrative. Well, we thank you so much, Mark, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We'll move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. 
by any means necessary. By any means necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about the constitutional crisis in Pakistan. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Justin Podor, associate professor at York University and the author of America's Wars on Democracy in Rwanda and the DR Congo. Justin, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Absolutely. And uh, Justin, here recently in Pakistan, there was a no confidence vote that was aimed at Prime Minister Imran Khan. And Khan uh, at this point is basically uh, rejecting uh, this vote and challenging uh, the constitutionality of it. And I believe this was the National Assembly where this uh, uh, first came down. And uh, uh, shortly thereafter, Khan went on TV and accused the the opposition elements of basically trying to carry out regime change on behalf, you know, of foreign elements that he seemed to really strongly imply uh, was the United States. And he went on to say that he advised the president of Pakistan to dissolve the parliament, so on and so forth. I I I can't help but feel like there's a lot that's bound up in this, Justin. Now, I was hoping you could help us understand what even led up to the no confidence vote against Imran Khan? And, you know, what is your analysis of his response? So I have like a long context uh, that I think people need to know, which is from the 80s, um, you know, Pakistan, China and the United States. All, and I think it's pretty relevant to today because Pakistan, China, the United States, Saudi Arabia, they all. Uh, came together for the purposes of fighting against and overthrowing the government of Afghanistan, which was supported by the Soviet Union at the time, the Russians. So it was this agreement because of the Sino-Soviet split. China was in there, but Pakistan was in there because India was partly friendly with uh, the Afghan government. And of course, Pakistan said, you know, we're here to to destroy communism. We're helping America destroy communism. And a, a Pakistani military guy repeated that just uh, the other day that, you know, we helped you destroy communism. Um, and now, you know, you're interfering with our with our government. So they from the Pakistan establishment's perspective, they don't see uh, any contradiction, the military establishment, they don't see any contradiction between being very close to China and very close to the US. And so that um, as the U.S. gradually kind of tries to force all of its allies to choose uh, the U.S. and abandon Russia and China, and as China and Russia get closer together, um, it becomes the, the pressure on countries like Pakistan uh, increases. So Pakistan, um, you know, Imran Khan in particular uh, is a little bit closer to uh, the idea of just integrating with Russia, China, etc., and abandoning the West, which, uh, you know, makes some of the, I think, military uh, establishment in Pakistan uh, unhappy because they like being close to both the U.S. and China. They like having those opportunities to uh, go between one and the other. They like that wiggle room um, and ultimately, you know, to have those allies against India. So 
That, I think, is the long term. The short term is uh, Imran Khan went to Russia shortly after Russia's military operation happened, uh, started in Ukraine. Um, and he went there and secured various deals for wheat and gas and so on at guaranteed prices, which, you know, I think economically is a very good idea. Um, compared to the self-sabotage that Western Europe is doing. But again, um, I think the U.S. started to look into ways of punishing leaders that stayed neutral. Um, and there, you know, when Imran Khan, uh, when the no confidence vote happened, Imran Khan presented various uh, claims. You know, I, I guess they're going to go to court eventually that these um, members of his party that switched uh, allegiance that kind of crossed the floor uh, to, to lose, uh, you know, so that he would lose that vote. Um, they had been visiting the U.S. embassy. They had, you know, they had been working with uh, U.S. officials in Pakistan to organize that vote, which, you know, maybe that's true. We you, you usually don't know until years later. And usually years later, it turns out that, yes, it was true. Um, so I, I, you know, I find it all pretty believable what Imran Khan is saying. Uh, but you know what ha the the no confidence vote was shut down by the speaker of the house but now it's going to the court um and in any case there's going to be an election uh you know Imran Khan just basically said we're going to we're going to shut this down early um and we're going to have an election so i mean effectively you know there are people who are saying Imran Khan has been ousted you know whether the whether they they kind of closed the parliament down and declared the snap election or not, uh, Imran Khan is is pretty much out. So may, there'll probably be an election in the next few months uh, in Pakistan. That's very interesting, especially since, you know, uh, Khan uh, intimated uh, when he appeared on television after all of this no confidence vote happened and accused the opposition of trying to force a regime change on behalf of the U.S. So I, I do wonder, since there will be these new snap elections, um, if what what do you think will be the response of the U.S.? And of course, it's, you know, election, alleged election watchdog, the OAS. I'm waiting for them to get involved and say, you know, during the election or afterward, this election is not, is, is not, it was not legal if it does not go the way that the U.S. government wants it to. But, I mean, is this one of the things, the outcome of this election and the U.S., interest and involvement in this election that you think is going to come out in the wash a few years down the line that we can't quite prove right now, but it looks kind of typical, Justin. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Pakistan's history is, uh, there. there's always been, I mean, since independence, the U.S. has had a heavy, heavy footprint. They've been an ally, but they've also been uh, a real... Um, They've interfered many times and there have been many coups, um, you know, to overthrow uh, parliamentary. So Pakistan kind of has alternated between parliamentary governments and military governments. Um, they're, you know, the most well, well known and probably destructive military government was um, was uh, what was his name? 
the the one who ran the uh, the insurgency the the count the insurgency and the mujahideen in in Afghanistan from the from the eighties and he was blown out of a out of his airplane. Uh, some people think possibly with uh, U.S. help, although there was a U.S. official on the plane. But anyway, there were multiple dictators, right? Ayub Khan. Um, uh, there was Musharraf most recently, uh, and then there have been various parliamentary and and the U.S. has supported the dictators, the, you know, the military governments and uh, various times the civilian government. So there's always a U.S. hand um, in every regime change in Pakistan. And I think, you know, I, I think with the long term trend of, you know, Pakistan turning to towards China and getting closer to China, you know, Pakistan, if they if they stay on this trend, which I don't see them ever having any interest in moving away from, uh, they are going to have to get used to being called authoritarian and dictatorial and all the bad things that uh, that the U.S. Uh, calls um, governments in the of the global south that that are close to China or that do um, anything that the U.S. doesn't like. So, you know, if, if Pakistan in particular, you know, when when the U.S., uh, when a parliamentary government in Pakistan is doing all the things that the U.S. wants, like sponsoring their um, war in Afghanistan and feeding their troops and all that, uh, then they're, they're either reformers or they're Democrats. Uh, but if they, uh, you know, as, as Imran Khan did, kind of insist that the U.S. get out of there um you know and i i think i that that's the other thing like with imran khan in particular i think part of it is of course going to moscow and and getting closer to russia but the other part of it i think the unforgivable thing that imran khan did from the u.s perspective is is uh getting insisting that the u.s get out of afghanistan and they don't have a base thanks to imran khan the u.s doesn't have a base in afghanistan or in pakistan now so they're they've been swept out of the region and i think they really want to come back and so getting uh, involved in this in this way and and Pakistan politics is I think their first step to potentially trying to get back into Afghanistan. Well that's interesting and it makes me wonder uh Justin what what could this all mean for the region and you know for uh, South Asia as we understand it because I mean you're mentioning Afghanistan of course there's you know Iran Pakistan India I mean you know just that whole uh, collection of countries that are geopolitically important for a number of reasons and you know I think that uh, you know this is a part of Washington's calculus as well but you know this whole uh, crisis in Pakistan I mean do you see it have any ripple effects uh, on a regional basis? Yeah, I mean, for sure. And again, I think the big picture is, uh, you know, <laughs> the world island, whatever, Russia, China, Eurasian integration. And I, I think I think it's sort of inevitable. But I do also think that as the U.S. looks at this, they're looking for ways to break that. And I've I I think that South Asia, India and Pakistan and their horrible relationship with each other um, is one of the weak links there. Um, they, you know, they their elites love the U.S., both of them, and they hate each other. Pakistan is close to China. India is, uh, you know, I guess closer, arguably, to Russia. But and they both look after their own interests, but they're they're politics in both countries is totally distorted by their sort of irrational 
hatred of one another and their narcissism of minor differences uh, that has that has been pretty devastating to to politics uh, and progress in both of those countries, India and Pakistan, since independence. So I think, you know, if the U.S. is going to get back in there and try to slow down that inevitable process of Eurasian integration, get, you know, get bases back in the region, get drone strikes and a war on terror going again, all of that, all of those horrible things that they, you know, just were stopped from doing last year. Um, then I think uh, I think this is this is where they're going to succeed, and this is where they're what they're working on. So, um, you know, back in the seventies, Iran was hosted a base for them, right? Iran was a big before the revolution in nineteen seventy nine, and then you know they moved on to Pakistan uh, as a base against Afghanistan, and then they had a base in Afghanistan during the occupation. So they've they've they haven't Amer um, the U.S. hasn't been out like fully out of that region um, in many decades. This is a, must be a very unfamiliar and uncomfortable experience for them. And uh, it explains, I think, why there's so many frantic uh, uh, moves going on uh, in terms of interfering in the, in the politics of these countries. Yeah, particularly when, uh, again, Imran Khan was very clear in not wanting to be uh, the puppet of the U.S. in exactly. this conflict um, of, uh, against Russia, where he denounced a joint letter issued by 22 European countries urging Pakistan to support a resolution in the United Nations General Assembly to condemn Russia's aggression in Ukraine. He said, are we slaves or, or and yeah. do whatever you tell us? We are neutral in this conflict and will support those who want to end the war in Ukraine. Just the fact, you know, Justin, that the U.S. and its allies would punish Imran Khan and Pakistan for wanting to work with those who end the war, who, who want to end this war in Ukraine, I think speaks volumes about them as opposed to Khan's uh, ability or lack of ability to lead his country. Yeah. And, and Imran Khan, I mean, from that, that position of Imran Khan's is actually very popular. Um, and I don't think, uh, I don't think, I mean, there you've heard people from the establishment saying, oh, we shouldn't antagonize the U.S. You know, they've also been our friend and they've been our ally. But everybody, I think, recognizes that, you know, Western interference in in political processes in Pakistan is not popular. It's not uh, it's not a, a short road to uh, political success. So uh, so the arguments against Imran Khan that are going on in Pakistan are basically like uh, he's not telling the truth. There's no foreign conspiracy. Uh, he's just trying to stay in power longer, um, that kind of thing. So and, and they and, you know, these claims that he's making have to be proven. Um, these are just accusations. But it's, um, you know, I I, I think like we said, like the covert, uh, you know, scheming behind the scenes that the U.S. has always done, evidence for that rarely emerges uh, in real time. 
But we do know, like you were saying, Jackie, we know what Imran Khan said. We know where he went. We know the kinds of statements that he made. And we know the timing of this no confidence vote happens to coincide perfectly with all of those things. Um, So I do, you know, I do think there's a pretty good circumstantial case uh, to be made here. And you can get into all the details of the parliamentary moves. But, you know, I do think that the, the big picture tells me at least that there is some kind of uh, regime change operation a kind of there's a permanent uh, regime change operation that the US has ongoing in all its allied countries and and its enemy countries so I, I just don't think there would be anything surprising um, at all in ter- if this if this were what was going on in Pakistan as well Definitely. And real quick, Justin, I want to bury the lead, but you also uh, host a a podcast called the Anti-Empire Project. And I really encourage people to check this out because they do lots of great work on like these long form uh, historical issues. Uh, uh, I see that, uh, you know, your your latest piece is about how the U.S. started the war on Syria in 2011. And, you know, it's so important that we understand this history and this context, Justin, in terms of uh, what's happening today. So I just wanted to give you a, a moment to sort of you know, talk a little bit about your work there and uh, where people can find it. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, it's called the Anti-Empire Project. And there's there's two of these, um, there's two series going on now. There, there's kind of like Anti-Empire Radio, where we talk about contemporary issues. And then there's a, a historical series, uh, which right now we're doing Scramble, the Scramble for Africa. Um, and we're doing the French uh, as they went around, um, you know, they overthrew the the Bay of Tunis. And we uh, I'm going to release an episode on the French in West Africa and Benin and, and overthrowing all the local uh, states there uh, in the 19th century. And like you said, yeah, the patterns, um, it's so powerful to understand the patterns because all of this language that you hear that this authoritarian dictator must go right in Syria, Assad must go and uh, today obviously Imran Khan must go um, because he's authoritarian all of a sudden um, when he was <laughs> you know he was just fine you know a, a month ago but he's suddenly an authoritarian dictator today um, also misogynist and and so on right um, but the 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 pattern of you know demonizing a, a state a leader you know personalizing it and then overthrowing it this happened so many times in the 19th century scramble for africa you know it happened over and over in the context of the so-called indian wars on the north american continent it happened so many times on the indian subcontinent um, where Pakistan and India exist today. So it's just this and and when you when you get to the point where that pattern is so familiar that it makes you roll your eyes is when you can really understand contemporary imperialist politics because it just it's just ridiculous. It's it's like every other time they've done it, it's been proven that they did it to steal the resources and massacre the people of, you know, Africa, Asia, Latin America, etc. But this one time, <laughs> right, <laughs> this one new time, we're supposed to believe them. And so, you know, I, that that's what I'm trying to do uh, is is just kind of cover that that history and, and give people a sense of, of, yeah, what what went on and what the forces that shaped politics today uh, and imperialism today in particular. 
definitely. And you can check all that out at podor.org. That's P-O-D-U-R dot O-R-G. And well, we thank you so much, Justin, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We'll move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about the role of the Pentagon and intelligence in Hollywood image making. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Jeremy Kuzmarov, managing editor of Covert Action Magazine and author of four books on U.S. foreign policy, including The Russians Are Coming Again with John Marciano and Obama's Unending Wars. Jeremy, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And, you know, Jeremy, I think something that's characteristic of the United States as a sort of social, political, cultural, economic entity is this kind of culture of celebrity worship and uh, sort of being consumed by the images of entertainment and, and things like this. And what I think a lot of people in the United States don't realize is the role that the military and intelligence agencies like the CIA play in the movies that we see and the images that are put before us and things like that. And you recently published a piece uh, about just this issue for Covert Action magazine entitled Hollywood is Full of CIA Agents, says Ben Affleck. And uh, I feel like we may even see some uh, reference or acknowledgement of this dynamic in uh, uh, certain movies and other uh, certain pieces of cultural production. And I was hoping you could break down uh, uh, how this comes out. Um, you know, uh, Covert Action Magazine actually had a, a two article special about just this issue as well, I'd like to mention. But how do we see the role of agencies and institutions like the CIA and Pentagon show up on the big screen? Well, I, I think they understand that, as you say, we live in this kind of celebrity saturated culture and many people's worldview is shaped by uh, Hollywood and what they see in the movies. Uh, so they've invested you know, a tremendous amount of resources uh, in trying to shape the message uh, to you know, favor the CIA, make their actions look as heroic, uh, sugarcoat or, or wash out the dark side of their operations. And they set up this office you know, that was headed for many years by Chase Brandon, uh, who've added the scripts of many different films, including some starring Ben Affleck. And yeah, they, they seem to have uh, you know recruited a number of key Hollywood actors like Affleck and his former wife, Jennifer Garner, who had also uh, you know starred in the hit series Alias, which ran on TV for numerous years and uh, featured, again, the CIA more heroic light. Uh, and I think this was very important, especially they realized, you know, in the 1970s, the CIA got a very bad reputation with the church committee hearing that exposed the CIA's involvement in, like, political assassinations 
and trying to kill Fidel Castro and, you know, dirty war activities in Vietnam, like the Phoenix program. Uh, so, you know, to save the agency and, you know, continue its funding, uh, they realized they needed a huge public relations blitz. And so Hollywood was key to that and the setting up of this liaison office. Yeah. And, you know, the, it's interesting that Affleck would uh, admit that, you know, Hollywood is probably full of CIA agents since his movie Argo was pretty much about uh, CIA agents uh, and how they, you know, whitewashed the U.S. embassy uh, raid in 1979, you know, involving the Iranian hostage crisis. You know, what do you think it means that someone of Ben Affleck's stature uh, would admit this, even though, you know, it's not a full throated. Yes. You know, Hollywood is, uh, you know, the propaganda arm of the CIA and the U.S. government. What kind of impact do you think this will have on, you know, the way people see Hollywood movies, particularly about U.S. foreign policy and militarism? Uh, well, I mean, I don't know how many people, uh, you know, saw his comments or, you know, uh, as much as we, you know, like to think covert action has a huge influence, our, our readership is still relatively small. So I think the average public, you know, is probably oblivious. Uh, to the fact that the CIA is financing these films or cultivating actors like Affleck, uh, and they watch these movies, and you know, uh, you know, propaganda is, is it, the propaganda is so effective because people don't think they're watching propaganda. You know, in, in like you know, Soviet Russia, people realize you know the Pravda was you know Soviet propaganda, and they came to see through it. But in this case, they, they're there just for entertainment to have a good time. But very subtly, they're being indoctrinated, and they don't even realize it, and that's why it's so so effective. And I don't think, yeah, very many know the extent to which the CIA finances or, or tries to manipulate these films. Yeah, and you know, even with the concept of propaganda and how people understand it, Jeremy, I, I think um, is a, a sort of an issue, at least in the United States in and of itself, because people in the U.S. seem to think that propaganda, it's only something that the bad guys do, right? The countries that the U.S. tells us are enemies. It's propaganda is what the Russians do. It's what the Chinese do, the Cubans, the Iranians, the North Koreans. You know, meanwhile, you know, whatever you see in the U.S., the media, the movies, well, that's all fair and balanced and you can take it to the bank, Jack, you know, unless, of course, it, you know, bucks the mainstream narrative and then it's, you know, quote unquote, misinformation as is such a, a, a popular piece here. But even beyond sort of the... um the intelligence aspect of it. I mean, there's also the way that, you know, the military is sort of uh, uh, fetishized and uh, lionized within uh, Hollywood in general. I mean, we could go down the list. I mean, you know, from years past and even recently, you know, American Sniper, I mean, take your pick. But I mean, every so often we, we get movies um, that also try to show, I mean, the truth of war and imperialism and take a critical look towards the U.S. military. You know, you have movies like Platoon, Jarhead. And so, you know, these are movies that, I mean, they're, they're good. They're good standing alone, sort of just as, you know, uh, media pieces. But, I mean, the political messaging, I think, is noteworthy as well. But it's certainly not the dominant strain that we see in Hollywood, which I think has a tendency to kind of not only whitewash the crimes of the U.S. military, but to completely erase the context in which a lot of these uh, wars and conflicts happen as well. You know what I mean? 
Absolutely, yeah. And I think, you know, those movies are few and far between. And actually, yeah, this, uh, there's this, you know, new documentary, uh, uh, called Theaters of War that, um, you know, investigate, is based on an investigation of Hollywood's, of the CIA and military's role in influencing Hollywood. And they had a whole section, yeah, where they interviewed Oliver Stone, uh, and they even brought the rejection letter, uh, you know, he had been given about his film, you know, Platoon, because you mentioned Platoon. And it was said to be, you know, too critical of the military. It showed the military, you know, turning on itself and soldiers doing drugs and committing war crimes. And that's not obviously the image the uh, military wanted to, to present. And so they rejected the film. And you know, Stone had a great amount of trouble getting that uh, ultimately made. And ultimately it did win the Academy Award because it was a tremendous film. But, you know, that's very rare. I mean, I think Stone is kind of a maverick. And uh, there are very few filmmakers like him who really want to tackle, you know, these issues and, and present the kind of critical portrait of the U.S. military. So, uh, you know, again, those films are, are so few and far between uh, that, you know, it's kind of dwarfed by the you know, huge number of films of the, you know, Black Hawk Down variety or American Sniper uh, that have a huge reach and really uh, glorify uh, the U.S. military. And it's, again, this huge amount of money and investment uh, that's put in these Pentagon and CIA offices to ensure that that you know positive images and heroic images in the military prevails in the majority of films, and those that don't accord uh, with it are usually uh, cut. You know they don't make the film. It's it's very rare, uh, and it's just you know there's the odd exception. Yeah, and not just you know whitewashing uh, the horrors and the evils of war that the U.S. Uh, military does commit, and you know the U.S. intelligence agencies. A lot of these movies also whitewash military corruption. Uh, there is also a connection between uh, Oliver Stone uh, and. Uh, the trouble he had getting Platoon made, but then being offered the script for Top Gun and how that was handled. What what was that about? Because Top Gun was is one of those incredibly popular movies that I, I just never liked, but people loved it. But what was the corruption involved in the making of that movie that is being whitewashed? Well, yeah, I think in effect Stone would kind of bribe. You know, they said, oh, you can't make Platoon, but we'll give you this Top Gun. And, you know, this will make you a star in Hollywood. But, you know, Stone was a man of principle, and he persisted. Uh, perhaps since, you know, he had been a military veteran himself, and he saw the horrors of the Vietnam War firsthand, he wanted to make, you know, a more true-to-life, uh, unvarnished account. And he ultimately succeeded. Uh, but again, yeah, that's very, very rare in Hollywood. And, you know, he's, I think, a, a filmmaker of such tremendous talent uh, that maybe uh, he was able to uh, prevail. Uh, but yeah, I think the other issue with corruption is that a lot of film like this documentary points to the fact that a lot of film, if they show something bad that happens in, in the military, whether it's racism or military corruption, they always attribute it to one or two bad apples and that the system in the end prevails. You know, these bad apples are, are dealt with or, you know, face justice. When in real life, often there's, you know, systematic corruption and systematic racism and sexism, uh, and it's at the top levels. But the films, may, again, make it seem like it's one or two bad apples and that the, you know, the, the, the top brass uh, are, are, are honest and, you know, going to uphold the virtue of the military when, in fact, we know that not to be the case. 
Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Jeremy, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Wednesday, April 6, 2022. And in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call here by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions, or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today, anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you, but that's not the only way that folks can get in touch with us here on the show, because at that time, you'll be able to give us a ring at 202-521-1320. That's 2 Zero two five two one one three two zero. Our operators are standing by. You can also check out our shows on sputniknews.com slash radio underscore by underscore any underscore means. We're also streaming on rumble.com slash C as in cat slash B-A-M necessary. But wherever you are in this world, we most certainly want to hear from you, and we are very happy to be joined for the hour today by Ted Rawl, an award-winning editorial cartoonist and columnist and author of the graphic novel, The Stringer. Ted, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And you know, Ted, as the war in Ukraine uh, continues to escalate and we're seeing this footage and these images uh, uh, from what's being described as, as a massacre in Buka, a, a small town some 60 kilometers from the capital city of Kiev. I think it's worthwhile to sort of take a look at how the anti-war, anti-imperialist movement inside the United States has sort of been operating in the month or so uh, since uh, Russia first invaded, engaged in this uh, military operation. And, you know, you recently published a piece on your website, raw.com, about some of these dynamics entitled how the left must continue to avoid the the Ukraine trap. And and I think it's definitely a worthwhile piece in the sense that you talk about how the right and by the right, you you clarified that you meant Republicans, Democrats and the the corporate owned media, which I think is more than fair and about how that political element. And I feel like I should also say that class element has been um, posturing towards, you know, the anti-war movement in the time uh, since the war in Ukraine began. And, uh, you know, to me, the aim seemed to basically have a, a disorienting impact on the uh, uh, sort of real anti-war left in the U.S. And what is probably really ultimately um, a attempt to try to get these anti-war elements basically on the side of U.S. imperialism and NATO to basically try to bludgeon those otherwise progressive elements into that camp. 
or, you know, otherwise be seen as, you know, sycophantic, you know, slavish denizens of, you know, the Kremlin or or whatever. And it's this thing of like, well, you have to pick a side. You know what I mean? It is the sort of the narrative that we're seeing. And I feel like that kind of thinking just... I, I mean, to say the very least, ignores a lot of, you know, the the real nuance and sort of complicated dynamics that go into this conflict, both in terms of what's happened over the last month, what's happened since 2014 or what's happened since 1949 when NATO began. And, you know, I could go on and on about this, uh, Ted, but I was hoping you could sort of break down your uh, analysis on this and how you see sort of you know, the the what I'll call the sort of real, the genuine kind of anti-war, anti-imperialist camp and uh, how that element has kind of been uh, treated, if you will, in the time since the beginning of the Ukraine war. Yeah, thank you, Sean. Um, yeah, that's a really excellent encapsulation of, of my thinking and my piece. I mean, you, the Ukraine war has been, I think, a problematic um, issue for the American anti-war left because, you know, it's the anti-war left and this is a war. So uh, this is, you know, it's easy for reactionary forces in the media and the two uh, corporate parties, the Democrats and the Republicans, to try to bludgeon, bully uh, us into uh, supporting them. And what, of course, that does is, I mean, it serves a, a several purposes for them. Uh, first of all, it distracts from their own ongoing and past uh, malfeasance. And, you know, as I say, you know, change and regime change and uh, political action really begins at home. You know, I mean, I think if, look, if the American anti-war left had endless resources of manpower and funding and attention, then, you know, maybe uh, all foreign policy issues would be weighed equally. But that's just not reality. The reality is that, um, you know, working class uh, movements are, like everyone in their personal lives, forced to focus on the issues that uh, they're most likely to be able to affect. And that's obviously here for Americans. It's American foreign policy. And, um, you know, like if you just think about, for example, uh, a protest, any protest, let's just say I'm going to choose a a country randomly. Let's just say there's a a war in Guatemala and that Guatemala is doing something. Well, you know, a protest in the streets of the capital city of Guatemala are going to have far more impact on the on the policymakers and the government uh, and, and the and the government of Guatemala, then say uh, a protest against a Guatemalan-led war in the United States or in Paris or in China, um, the Guatemalan authorities just don't care as much about what people who are not their own citizens in their own country have to say, regardless of what kind of regime they are. And so here we are, uh, you know, with the U.S. media acting as if they've never heard of the horrors of war or occupation uh, before (laughs) the Russian invasion of Ukraine, Uh, although they are currently engaged in in proxy wars in places like Yemen and Syria and Libya right now. Um, And they just invaded Afghanistan and Iraq. 
and they engaged in regime change <laughs> in all over the all over the place in recent years, including in Ukraine itself eight years ago. Um, and so, and they were completely silent on these issues, completely. So, you know, if let's just say we on the on the left were to go along with them, and that we agreed with every all their critiques of Russia. Uh, in Ukraine, and we just we, we were we were to give our support to them, assuming we agreed with them, which I think is a huge stretch. Um, the then we would be basically agreeing to not talk about American imperialism, the illegality and the horrors of the wars against Afghanistan and Iraq, and so on. And we so we would let them change the subject and brush and sweep that stuff completely under the rug. And we'd basically be tacitly agreeing to basically make all criticism of war unique to adversaries of the United States. And we'd be running interference for the U.S.'s own projects, which are nefarious, and their involvement in places like Ukraine itself. So, you know, what I've, the reason I wrote this piece was because I felt like What's that the the anti-war left has been actually very smart about this by refusing to be pulled into this to be engaged by this ridiculous trap. But I feel like there are some people who are watching who might be allies of the anti-war left who are sort of more progressive than liberal uh, Democrats who kind of need an explanation for exactly why we see it as a trap and why we refuse to be engaged and why we keep saying, look, we're not even going to talk about this really um, until you know we settle this matter of the fact that you guys uh, tolerate, legalize, you, you let the U.S. government legalize and you tolerated their legalization of torture. You guys uh, sat by idly for 20 years while Afghanistan was brutalized and are sitting by idle, you know, sitting by idly while the people of Afghanistan starve while the United States government stole Afghan government funds that they desperately need in order to eat this winter during a famine. So it is a, I think it's important to, to articulate that uh, for possible allies and also for if there are any people on the left who've sort of just been doing this instinctive, doing the right thing instinctively. I think sometimes it's sort of like the work of Howard Zinn, where he puts it all down on paper so that you can, you have the talking points and you're able to sort of formulate these ideas in your mind, even though they're all things that were rattling around, uh, but, you know, sort of in an, un, in an un, non-centered way. And sometimes it's easier just to be able to to, to go to that place and say, okay, yeah, 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 this is, this is what I mean. This is an easier way to put it. Yeah, you really did lay out uh, one of the arguments that I find myself using uh, more and more frequently as I encounter people who have never identified themselves as being on the left or leftist, but they've had some vague notions about, you know, social and racial justice. And generally, I don't like what the Democrats have done in the past, you know, two election cycles, particularly as it relates to Bernie Sanders. This is the thing that has been blowing my mind, Ted. People who understood very clearly that the Democratic Party is not above sabotaging a candidate running for 
presidency for or, or for the nomination for its own party, literally lying about a candidate running for the Democratic nomination, uh, sabotaging him in the media, uh, while also pushing candidates who just like rich people and are fine with only, as you point out in your article, only rich people being able to go to the doctor and the rest of us, you know, scrounge up and put duct tape on everything. These are people who were clearly upset about the Democratic Party in all of those misdeeds, clear about how the Democratic Party has not cared about folks, people, human beings, and our actual problems. All of a sudden now, these very same people believe everything the Democratic Party is saying about this war in Ukraine. And and I, I don't know what to make of it other than I think this is the influence of Russiagate. Or I, I don't know, Ted, what 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 is your assessment of, you know, folks who had at one point a pretty clear uh, assessment of the Democratic Party being, you know, a dumpster fire full of liars and uh, multimillionaires, all of a sudden now being the harbingers of truth uh, to take down evil Vladimir Putin uh, over Ukraine? Yeah, you know, I think I think it's true that like the land the the landscape of Russophobia goes back forever. I mean, it goes back certainly longer than anyone who is listening to us today is has been alive. And you know, I mean, there are still it still boggles the mind that uh, people characterize, for example, uh, Vladimir Putin as a communist. Um, you know, he he's a conservative, and um, you know, he's anti-communist. He's you know. Anything but, and uh, but you know it's it's all part of the Russophobic narrative. He's trying to rebuild the Soviet Union. He's a, you know he's a communist and so on. And I mean, it. I think what happens is that when the groundwork is laid for certain uh, countries uh, to be and and politicians to be viewed as bête noire in the uh, American corporate media, then. Pretty much people sort of, it's shorthand, and people who are working 50 hours a week don't really have the time to do the deep dive, and they tend to believe it. It's sort of in the same way that, like, ever since the fall of the Shah of Iran in the late 70s, pretty much any time you want to portray the Iranians as doing anything, you know, as nefarious or evil or aggressive, it just sort of, it just sort of flies. The same, you know, we're seeing similar rhetoric about China. You know, it's, you know, forget about history. I'll, I'll you know, I can, you can mention, till, you know, till the day is long. You know, well, you know, uh, China has never been really militarily expansionist ever in its, you know, in in many, 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 many years, in hundreds and hundreds of years, and even over the course of thousands of years, China just hasn't been very invading. And but when you say that, people look at you as if, you know, I mean, what you're saying is is pure stone cold fact. But that no one can refute, but they just look at you like you're crazy because the propaganda says otherwise. You know, but China is a threat. We have to increase our defense spending. Um, and the Russia thing is exactly the same way. You know, it's there. It, it's the movies. It's the rhetoric. And and unfortunately, even the progressive left, even someone who I respect, like Bernie Sanders, is not really able to articulate in a forceful way, like guys. Really, truly, this you know, like the Russia stuff. Take it easy, okay? You don't know. I mean, 
you know, it's still considered to be uh, in mainstream media an article of fact, and therefore. Uh, in the sort of NPR smart crowd, as I call them, an article of faith that Russia, you know, hacked the 2016 election. Never happened. It's been de- it's been debunked. Just didn't happen. And it doesn't matter. You know, the, it's the truth. Really, doesn't matter. Uh, the perception is reality, and that's what people go by. So, you know, and it's, I think it is asking too much ask the American people to be, every time there's a crisis like Ukraine, you know, for them to sort of do a deep dive into the history of Ukraine and, you know, well, it was divvied up and had an Ottoman influence of the East versus the West. And I mean, to this day, we were in the Vietnam War for, you know, for for decades. We lost lost 58,000 Americans and killed 2 million Vietnamese. But I think most Americans have very little idea about sort of the basic causes of the war, you know, they, they could watch the Ken Burns documentary and still miss a lot. Um, it's, it's very frustrating. Yeah, to be sure. And I mean, you know, it just continues to trip me out about, you know, folks and their analysis of Vladimir Putin and trying to say that, you know, he wants to um, uh, bring back the Soviet Union. And I'm just like, I mean, how many ways can Vladimir Putin expressed like his anti-communism before people in the West grasp what it is. You know, I mean, just not that long ago. I mean, he gave this, you know, a historical and nearly slanderous sort of um, uh, version of history as it pertains to, you know, Vladimir Lenin and Ukraine and all of that. I mean, it was pretty clearly an anti-communist, but yet it's sort of like I saw some poll. I can't remember where about, you know, people in the United States were asked, well, how did they describe um, Russia and like the major, the highest percentages was calling it like communists and socialists. And so obviously that stems from, you know, uh, uh, decades and decades of anti-communism that basically makes people in the U.S. associate communism and socialism with anything bad or with like authoritarian or dictatorial type government. So if they perceive uh, a world leader in that way, then they will think that they are communist, even if that doesn't even nearly approximate their actual politics or the substance of their policy, as is the case with Vladimir Putin. And there's something else I want to say, because I've been seeing something, a narrative that's been bothering me that comes from You know, people who call themselves liberals, excuse me, people who call themselves progressives, but actually they're just, you know, uh, gussied up liberals. Right. And what I'm talking about is this idea that socialists and communists, anti-imperialists, people of the revolutionary left are, quote unquote, defending Russia because you know, we we pine for the days of the Soviet Union or because we still see the modern Russian Federation as uh, the the Soviet Union. And, you know, we're just looking with these um, historical rose tinted glasses of a bygone era. That is that there is absolutely no material basis to that. It's completely made up. And I think shows yet again how the issue of imperialism is such a dividing line, at least in U.S. politics, because you can have people who are basically good on just about every domestic issue. But the moment there is a problem that steps even a quarter inch outside of 
the borders of what is today the United States. I mean, all of a sudden, you don't know if you're talking to, you know, Joe Biden or or Donald Trump or or Mike Pence, because they are in lockstep with the ruling class. They are in lockstep with this capitalist, imperialist um, uh, status quo. And I don't know how you call yourself a progressive when you seem to lack even the most basic forms of critical analysis and historical literacy. I mean, it's pretty gross, but to me, it shows who's serious and who isn't. And as I often say in these cases, the only thing that matters is the organizing. Everything else is just noise. But we're going to move to our first break of the hour on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. Myself and Jackie Lukeman continue to be joined by Ted Rawl. And you know, Ted, we left off there sort of talking about movement progressives, if you will. But I'd actually like to uh, move a little bit to talk about uh, elected official progressives. Uh, you know, the, the excuse me, the so-called squad and uh, uh, this whole element of mainstream U.S. politics who sometimes say the right things and who sometimes advocate for some things that are objectively good. But <laughs> I think to find themselves in kind of a, a difficult position in a number of levels because it's been shown conclusively that the Democrats have absolutely no problem whatsoever with attacking people in their own party if it means that uh, they're bucking the uh, sort of centrist leadership. And then to be honest, I think with some elements of this group, there's like some straight up careerism. So, you know, certain people just aren't going to go that far in their criticism or be that critical. And we also just don't see a lot of people who are actually like fighters, who are actually like struggle and fight uh, uh, for something. Although uh, maybe I should note, you know, recently uh, we've seen, you know, some of these folks sort of once again raising the issue of Medicare for all and things like this. And you also talked about this on um, on a, a recent piece. Uh, from just a couple of days ago on your uh, website, Ted, entitled, you know, Biden is making fools out of progressive Democrats. And I was hoping you could get more into that. I mean, just off the top of my head, I mean, when you look at um, how Joe Biden has positioned himself as the vanguard of the fund, the police movement, uh, the complete opposite of what we hear from these progressive elements and how it really seems that Biden has just been doing everything in his power to be on like the opposite side of all the most like popular measures and policies, not just, you know, among pro- elected progressives, but amongst the people of the United States. And even in pieces like the Build Back Better bill, which, you know, relative, you know, to, to liberal politics in the U.S., I think was pretty ambitious. But even that got held up because of right wing elements within the Democratic Party. And so, you know, I, why is it necessary 
for not just Joe Biden, but for that element of the sort of centrist neoliberal establishment leadership in the Democratic Party to do this kind of, you know, embarrassing song and dance when it comes to progressive. And, you know, and they seem to employ all manner of resources to cut them off on the knees on a number of levels, Ted. Well, you know, Biden, I'm glad you brought him up. And Biden is such an interesting uh, example of this phenomenon because he, I mean, let's re- let's remember why he got into the race. Uh, in you know, Bernie Sanders was surging; it was his second candidacy. He had uh, a better organization, and uh, he was he definitely this time around kind of understood that he could actually win the nomination. And there was a lot of energy in his candidacy in tw- in the 2020 cycle. And the powers that be within the party sort of saw that all the corporate Democrats like. Pete Buttigieg and uh, Amy Klobuchar and so on seem to be unable to, quote unquote, stop Bernie. If people remember two years ago, I'm sure you guys remember uh, the sort of, the, you know, the, the, the breathless editorials like, you know, we must. How will we stop Bernie Sanders? You know, as if that was like a something that we should do or that should be done or needed to be done because it rep- he represented some sort of existential threat to the powers that be. And. Biden was the guy who came in uh, as the savior of the centrist Democrats, of the corporate Democrats, to stop uh, Bernie. And uh, Biden made a deal with James Clyburn. I mean, I'm, I'm, this is the broad strokes. It's more complicated than that. But basically, um, that, that secured the Southern primary vote for him. And, uh, and the rest is history. I mean, you know, Biden... Uh, did end up doing what Klobuchar and the rest were unable to do. He swept in. But then what's interesting is that he decided for the general election to solidify. He kind of followed the advice of people like me to, uh, you know, like bring in the progressives under the big tent, uh, try to uh, make sure that the Democratic Party uh, wasn't divided the way that it had been. He learned from the Hillary Clinton debacle in 2016 that you know, Democrats can't win in the general election without strong, progressive, enthusiastic, progressive support. So he pivoted and, and, and gave some symbolic and some meaningful concessions to the left. And, um, and then when he became president, also, you know, the bill gave basically to, uh, let the left have a voice at the table, uh, more so than the left has had at, a, at the table of any Democratic president. I would say since Johnson. And so what's interesting about that is then it failed, right? But when Build Back Better went down, as you pointed out, the right-wing elements um, sort of embodied, symbolized by Kirsten Sinema of Arizona and Joe Manchin of West Virginia, who both both, uh, said that they would not vote for Build Back Better. The whole thing fell apart. And what's really interesting is when the blame machine was revved up, it was directed not at the progressives who, you know, they all were going to vote for big for Build Back Better and campaigned for it and were very enthusiastic about it. But at, but it was I mean, so it was it was focused on them against against as opposed to the two individuals who voted who said they would vote against it, who were basically traitors to the Democratic Party. There was no penalty, they didn't lose any committee assignments or anything like that. Nothing happened. And so I think now you, you find 
Uh, so Joe Biden is sort of back to being uh, pre-2020 general election Joe Biden. Uh, the people in his orbit who are a bunch of sort of Obama-era uh, corporatists are back to excluding and blaming progressives. And progressives are homeless. And I think you end up with this you know, insane thing of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, you know, playing nice. You know, she voted to uh, re-elect Nancy Pelosi as speaker, even though she's 200 years old and a corporatist. Um, you know, she voted She voted for uh, for the Ukraine uh, war funding bill. Um, and now, you know, she, she and other members of the squad, of the progressive squad, you know, are annoyed by the fact that They've been they've been sold out again, but that's what that's what happens. You join the Democratic Party, they're going to sell you out every single time. There's never going to be, uh, you know, you might come close to smelling a payday, but you're never going to be able to cash that check. And that's the thing, Ted. I mean, we've been saying this about what was going to happen to the Progressive Caucus. We've been saying this about AOC and all of her Twitter posturing for what it was worth, which was absolutely nothing. We made this point about the need to push for a floor vote for Medicare for all, even though, yes, it would have not passed, but it would have at least made it appear that the Progressive Caucus was serious about doing something, right? I mean, so the way you describe them in your piece, which I really do love, where you say they are impotent and hopeless, Members of the AOC-led House squad and left-leaning senators only have one left uh, option left to make a strong political statement, leave the Democratic Party and either join the Greens or form a new progressive party. But that would risk ridicule and marginalization by liberal media outlets like the New York Times and MSNBC, not to mention grassroots organizing, which requires hard work like talking to voters and getting rained upon. This is all stuff that we knew these people never, ever wanted to do, with the exception, I will say, of Cori Bush. But otherwise, the rest of them have been, they've turned out to be exactly what we said they were, as you described, the squeaky mice of the inside the Beltway progressive left, and that's all they are. They are. It, it's just a bunch of nothing because they're not going to do the things that you just mentioned, leaving the Democratic Party, joining the Greens, forming an independent political party or even go, you know, door knocking, grassroots organizing, that kind of thing. So, I mean, since we know that the progressives are not going to do those things, Ted, what do we do now? Well, I mean, that's the problem is that um, what we within there's kind of you you have to do multiple things at the same time when you're trying to change everything. I mean, in an ideal world, one would want to completely start from scratch the entire system and start from scratch. So that's that's a revolution. And, you know, obviously there have to be revolutionary conditions and there has to be you know, it's a good amount of uh, preconditions and hard work and organizing and luck have to come together in a certain way for that to happen. You know, there's no magic formula for making revolution as, as Lenin, you know, learned a few times while trying to do it until he got it right. Uh, and he didn't get it right. The people got it right. I mean, I remember I'm paraphrasing, but Lenin said, you know, the, the, that he had learned that revolutionaries don't create revolution. They recognize when revolution is happening. 
and they you know they try to be try to try to help it along and um because it's the people who make revolution and i think so you know you work toward that you tr- you hope for that but at the same time in the meantime you've got this capitalist electoral democracy you know small d democracy very small d um and you have to try to work within that and i would say you affect know, gains and try to make people's lives better through that system as much as you can Clearly, there's an appetite for a party to the left of the Democratic Party. Uh, when you have voter turnout in, in, in national elections that never gets higher than 60 percent, and that's you know, one of the lowest in the world among uh, countries that have uh, fair elections, um, you, know, you, you can tell that there's about roughly a quarter of the, pop- of the voters uh, would vote progressive if they thought that if such a party were on the ballot and if they thought such a party would have a chance to win, which is, I know, a stupid way to look at it, that people don't want to vote for it. They don't want to be alone. They don't want to be part of like a party that gets 1% of the vote while it's building. But that's just sort of, that's human nature that we have to work with in the same way that, you know, uh, sports fans don't like to root for a team that consistently loses, and uh, which is too bad, but it's it's just the way it is. So, you know, you have to kind of figure out a way to slowly but surely effectively build uh, what they call a third party, but build an alternative progressive party. And I think it has to be grassroots. It can't be sort of one of these phony, like from the top down formations, like there's uh, one of those floating around now, right? The, uh, uh, what is it, the Coalition for uh, a progressive movement or party or something like that that uh, is trying to run a candidate in 2024, and it's a bunch of celebrities on the left and uh, from Hollywood and so on. It's really got to be from. It's got to be grassroots. It's got to be from the people of the people for the people. And uh, you know, we're talking about something that just uh, it requires a lot of young people with boundless energy, enthusiasm and drive. Uh, it's not something that someone old like me can do. Yeah. And, you know, just from my own personal experience too, you know, being in the movement and, and doing organizing work, you know, the, the young people are very aware. I mean, they're, they're well-informed. They've had access 24 seven access to information. Some of them basically their whole lives, you know, I'm talking about the generations that, uh, are behind me and whatnot. And, um, they, I think, are very eager to join organizations and to get involved uh, with these efforts. And, and uh, I think, you know, as the saying goes, I think the, the, the kids are all right. I think it's just a matter of, you know, what kind of organizations they join, the sort of work that they're doing and, and, and the kind of politics that they are uh, really into. And, yeah, you know, having that grassroots aspect of any formation that is sort of seeking to carry out real change, I think, is very important. And I also think, Ted, that the ruling class with its uh, parties and the Democrats and Republicans, I think they understand very clearly what you just laid out when you said that, you know, people would absolutely support a um, sort of left party outside of the Democrats if they thought they had a a shot, uh, like an actual chance at winning. And I mean, you know, I've seen the kind of support that candidates from alternative parties get, you know, when they really don't uh, have a real shot. But it's just people, and this may sound 
obvious, but it, it's true. People respond very well to programs and platforms that actually speak to their needs. Because as deeply propagandized as the people of the United States are, people also understand that they've basically been left out in the cold by this government that they are told is in place to protect them. And so I raise this to note that since the ruling class understands that an independent alternative formation party, what have you, if it were able to get momentum would be a threat. That is precisely why there's all of these barriers that are created to basically stop that from happening in terms of, you know, ballot access. And I mean, it just, you know, elections, or at least if we're talking like presidential elections and these other type of races, I mean, they're a playground for the rich. I mean, it seems that every presidential election cycle, um, it breaks the record for the previous one in terms of how much money is spent. And so, you know, even something as simple as the debate stage is cut off from um, alternative parties and formations for just this reason, because the last thing that this ruling class is going to allow is for these kinds of ideas to have a platform to possibly take hold in the uh, American consciousness. And you were also talking about Lenin and his um, sort of stance towards revolution. I think, and I think that he is a really good example of that and about how revolution really is a process and you're absolutely not going to be able to carry it through without uh, the direct and enthusiastic involvement of the masses of poor working and oppressed people. Y'all hear me quote all the time on this show, this figure of 140 million people living at or near um, the poverty line. And if we don't get either a majority or a significant minority of that element of this country bought into, you know, revolutionary transformation of this country, it's simply not going to happen. And this is a part of the hard work of really um, doing that movement building and all those sorts of things. But what Lenin also understood is that there has to be the proper kind of organization in place for when that revolutionary crisis comes so that Basically, when the tide flows in, you're not still building the ship, right? It's already built. You know what I'm saying? You build in uh, before the storm. And so having the proper vehicle for that is so, so important. And I think where our energy should really be focused. But we're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's two. 02521-1320. I am here. Jackie Lukeman is here. Ted Rawl is here. And you know, Ted, I'm actually, you know, just just sort of curious. I mean, as a as a journalist, as someone who's been in journalism for uh, a long time, and as someone who I think has been pretty consistent in terms of your stance on the Ukraine war, 
I, I actually have a two-part question. I, I'm curious of, you know, sort of the responses and reactions that you get to your work and your cartoons, you know, in the time since the Ukraine war. And what do you think it says about, you know, the corporate-owned media in the U.S. and how, you know, bellicose it's been in this situation? Uh, well, the uh, you know, I, I'm tempted to immediately say that I've caught a lot of heat, and that's certainly true. Um, I've had even uh, some colleagues who identify as sort of liberal Democrats who've been calling me out as a stooge of Russia and Putin, and uh, you know, a, uh, a, a I, this one guy, fellow cartoonist, actually called me a war criminal today, which I thought was oddly hilarious and hilariously odd. Uh, but, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to say it's only like that, although that's, it's disturbing. Uh, and the influence of, uh, you know, like you mentioned earlier in the show, the, uh, the tendency of imperialism to be the dividing line. And that's so true. You know, that's, that's like, you know, the only truly bipartisan thing in, in Washington is military spending. I mean, there's, it's, I think it's been like 50 years or so where, uh, the, the Pentagon has gotten every single dime it wanted, and then some from both the Democrats and the Republicans. They've never not voted for one of these appropriations measures. Uh, you know, even AOC sent, voted to send money to, for military assistance to Ukraine. Um, so yeah, it's you know the fix is really in. And uh, to be to have the stance that I have, you have to be really willing to take some abuse and not care. And, you know, I am, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm wired that way and I'm used to it and I have a thick skin, but uh, there's also interestingly been a considerable amount of support. Um, there's been uh, people who are sort of intelligently sort of in wait and see mode, uh, you know, wh uh, if, whether, you know, it's about you know, the latest accusation you know, that Russia did this, Russia did that. And, you know, they're, they're like, okay, rather than jumping on board the bandwagon, they listen to me and they, and they and they kind of agree. Like, well, I should sit back, take a breather, and I'm like, so let's see how things play out and see what's true and see what's not true because there's so many lies floating around anytime there's any kind of war. Um, and and also there's been some people who've been extreme, who've been uh, overtly appreciative of where I stand. And I think maybe to some extent I've earned – uh, some props for having been consistently against, uh, you know, aspects of U.S. militarism and imperialism that are very that were wildly popular at the time. You know, like like the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan. You know, uh, people forget that Obama, part you know, partly ran and won election in 2008 because he called Afghanistan the good war, and the, you know, he he complained that. Bush had taken his eye off the ball of the bat of the stupid war in Iraq, and then you know Obama came in and, and increased uh, troop strength in both Afghanistan and in Iraq, both the dumb war and the and the good war, I guess. And but because I've been, you know, I think history has proven that people like me who were against this project, uh, you know, we were right. That's popular opinion has come around to to our side, and if that happens over and over again. Some people start to notice, and they're like, "Okay, well, maybe guys like Ted Rawl are are not all that bad." Um, and then some, you know, some people genuinely are. You know, a lot of people are able to see this for what it is, and uh, you know, I think it's kind of a miracle because, um, you know, you, you mentioned the media. I mean, the media is so, uh, you know, whether you're talking about 
from from CNN to MSNBC to Fox, like all the mainstream media, liberal and conservative, Democrat and Republican, it's all in the bag when it comes to uh, you know being anti-Russian and pro-Ukraine, and and so it's it's like it's so monolithic that it's actually amazing that there's a significant minority, let's say twenty or twenty-five percent of the population, that is sitting on its hands, doesn't buy it, doesn't believe in it. I mean, that's a lot of people when you consider the level of propaganda that they're exposed to. You know, it's kind of like the statistic that I always go to, that uh, consistently the Gallup poll has found that about 40% of Americans prefer socialism to capitalism. Considering the history of red baiting and the Red Scare and McCarthyism and blacklisting and so on that is in this country and how socialism has constantly been denigrated in this country. That's an amazing statistic. I mean, imagine if things were reported in a more even, uh, you know, even tempered, balanced kind of way. And I think that's true about the Ukraine thing, too. I mean, but, you know, things are obviously the realities and the truths and the nuances are going to filter out over time as they always do. But it does take time and we're not, you know, not enough time has passed yet. Definitely. We've got a caller on the line here. Ingrid, tell us what's on your mind. Well, hi. Um, I'm listening, and I'm, I'm sorry I haven't read Ted's article. I can't quite make out exactly what his, his position is. But what's on my mind is that this talking about just the war is a little bit of a, a distraction as opposed to to the whole idea of whether or not a multipolar world would would be better, would be desirable in the long run. And uh, this is not really possible if, if Russia just let go now. And the only people I've seen, uh, you had uh, Kuzmarov on a while ago, you said he was from Covert Action. They had a uh, webinar last week, Scott Ritter came right out and said he he's in favor of the Russians pursuing this and winning bigly. And I think also maybe Caleb Maupin has come out with this kind of a stance. And to me, it's um, counterproductive to have people like this Saturday, Code Pink and others, Doing a big rally, saying we want uh, we want the troops, the Russian troops, to leave Ukraine now. This is not this is not going to bring about, I think, ultimately uh, the the shift that is needed from this unipolar hegemony. And could I hear what Ted has to say about that? Sure. Thanks a lot, Inga. Appreciate you calling in, uh, Ted Raw. Your thoughts. Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting because, you know, I think I think what Code Pink and sort of other sort of soft progressives are, uh, you know, trying are after is they're responding to just sort of the fact that war is brutal and vicious and people die and they want that to stop. And, you know, I mean, I think anybody who's a humanitarian or a humanist uh, can get behind that. And on the other hand, there are is there is a danger of, of I mean, sometimes you do kind of have to look at the world like, the, you know, the board game risk. And we do have a unipolar uh, post ever since the collapse of the Soviet Union. We've been living in a unipolar world controlled by uh, one power that is uh, far from benevolent, the United States and its Western allies in Europe. And what what this whole crisis um, 
sort of offers the prospect of is uh, is for the very the existing loose alliance. It's sort of I would say it's an alliance in waiting uh, between China, India, and Russia, uh, comprising. Uh, about a third of the or more of the world's population, right? Over 2.5 billion people. Uh, if that were to become a closer um, affiliation, uh, and uh, in a way that was able to counter the financial hege- hegemony of the dollar, the euro, and the dollar, uh, the and and was able to create, you know, a completely different reality of markets and control of like shipping lanes and so on. Um, that is. You know, I mean, in the in is in the marketplace of ideas. That's and and power. That's going to make things more diverse, and it's just going to make it a less dangerous world. And I think the more power is diffused, the better all of us are pending the revolution, right? And um, so I, you know, I think I do understand where like Code Pink is coming from, and I think their hearts certainly were in the right place, uh, have been in the right place. Uh, throughout the anti-Afghanistan and anti-Iraq ad- misadventure uh, stuff, but I think they are uh, either wittingly or unwittingly, more more likely the latter, serving uh, you know these kind of disgusting interests that I was talking about in my piece and falling into the trap. And it is entirely po- it is totally okay to say you know I, I don't. I, I can't get behind any country invading another country. I'm against all war. and But also to say the Ukrainian government is illegitimate and doesn't deserve to be defended. And, uh, you know, and, and I'm not going to get into bed with Nazis. It's totally OK to not take sides. It's totally OK to just say, I'm going to keep my counsel on this because I don't I don't see an easy side to weigh in on. And, you know, you don't have to weigh in on everything that you don't know everything about. It's that's what you know. My mom taught me. Uh, my late mom taught me that th- the three most powerful words in the English language are "I don't know." You can just say "I don't know," and and that's totally okay. Yeah, and I mean uh, to be fair, in terms of um, the cold pink action, there's also a part of the messaging is a no to NATO expansion. But I mean, uh, 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 Ingrid, our call, I definitely take your. Point. And I mean, you know, I think it's just uh, sort of a result of how uh, different elements of the anti-war movement are sort of uh, trying to grapple and reconcile certain aspects with it. And I, def- and I agree with what you're saying, Ted. And also to the point that Ingrid was making about, you know, talking about the war and multipolarity. Well, I mean, I think I mean, I think they go, you know, hand in hand. And I, and I also think that there even needs to be some clarity about what we mean when we say uh, a multi polarity and, uh, uh, and and even the way we've used it on uh, uh, this show. And we're definitely going to be doing some work around that to have a sort of more critical view of even what that means. But I think as ever, for those of us here in the U.S., inside the imperial core, I- I'll always argue that our uh, primary duty is to highlight what uh, this government is doing and has done, you know, all the things that has been tarred as uh, what aboutism uh, is absolutely relevant to the conversation because it shows a pattern that Washington has been engaged in for years and years and years. And what we're seeing right now in terms of Ukraine is absolutely a part of that 
excuse me, pattern, even if, you know, American troops aren't, you know, storming the Kremlin or whatever. You know what I mean? And so uh, particularly when we know the role of uh, the United States in all this, both in this moment and uh, uh, historically. So when we talk about uh, how we organize and we've been highlighting on the show about how all these economic issues just keep getting worse and worse and worse and corporate profits have reached, you know, trillions of dollars. And, you know, we, we talk to we're blue in the face and we'll continue to talk to even bluer in terms of how this government and the ruling class that operates, it just throws away um our money really steals our money in order to keep up uh, the global never ending war machine and how we're um, directly harmed by it. So, I mean, I'm sure we'll continue to see uh, different uh, expressions of this from different elements and we may agree with them or we may disagree with them. But I think what's clear is that uh, we're in a very, very dangerous moment uh, right now in terms of world politics and you know that continues to be for me what i perceive to be a kind of i don't know inconsistent or wishy-washy sort of response from the uh, uh government of uh, volodymyr Zelensky. i mean i was just looking at this piece in the washington post i was talking about how nato is saying that the ukraine government um you know may be open to a peace deal with russia like within certain limits well, at the same time, you know, Zelensky has been calling for, you know, more sanctions and even more, you know, aggressive action. You know, they don't say, you know, attack Russia, start a war with Russia. But, you know, this is what we sort of mean as we continue to see these pushes to try to further isolate Russia from the world stage. Although I don't, at this point, that just doesn't seem terribly uh, likely in the way that the U.S. and its, you know, small club of the so-called international community would uh, probably like. And look, I don't want to get too predictive. I mean, I neither I nor anyone really knows or can sort of rightfully predict how this thing will end or how things will continue to unfold. We know that the Biden administration is very willing to see that this goes on ad nauseum and in perpetuity. And he said as much. And that's why we continue to see all this money and resources going to just that effort in Ukraine. But I think ultimately the war in Ukraine and the geopolitical impacts that it is having already just a month in is converging with the deteriorating social conditions here in the United States and contributing to that rot, the ROT that we talk about so much here on the show. When we talk about that rot, that's societal decay. Literally, we're talking about the contradictions of uh, the capitalist system being turned up to an even higher level than we've seen in some time. And people are saying about how they're not, you know, benefiting from all of these resources and money that this country has, has that it so gladly gives to seemingly everything else except the things that uh, people need. You know, just before the hour today, I happened to be talking to this this homeless cat uh, that lives near the, the Sputnik office building who told me he's going to have to move tomorrow because after two weeks, the police come and, and, and sweep you off. They consider it an encampment. And just, you know, all the little stuff that I never thought about. He was telling me how he has a hernia and how a lot of homeless people have hernias and these other physical problems because you have to physically move everything that you own 
all the time. And that's just one of those things that you never really think about. So we're talking about a process and a system and a society that springs from that system that just, man, it just try, it just, it poisons you in every conceivable way and tries to break you down and then turns around and tells you that it's the greatest system that there ever was. This is the sickness of this capitalist system, right? And so at the end of the day, after all the arguments and the tweets and the articles and, and all these sorts of things and all of that, right? Which is necessary. I'm not going to, you know, act like analysis isn't important in a time such as this. But at the end of the day, we have to see that it is this system, right? That is the cause of all of this. And therefore, it is that system that will ultimately have to be overturned if that rot, that social decay is ever going to be reversed. And it can be. But only if we build the movement that can do it. Well, we're going to leave it there for today here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. One thing, Ted Rawl, so much for joining us today. We'll be back tomorrow with an all-new episode. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By Any Means Necessary.